Hello, everybody. Welcome back to my channel, Lit Assure Talks. If you're new to my podcast, make sure to subscribe. Now let's get ready to get lit. Today we will be discussing the relevancy of Lucille Clifton's 1993 poem, Won't You Celebrate With Me, in modern-day America. Throughout the poem, she speaks of her experience in the country as both non-white and woman, as she states. She celebrates her accomplishments while acknowledging her struggle at such an intersection. She explains that while she is proud of her triumphs, both her gender and race interfered with her aforementioned accomplishments, as she possibly would have had a much easier success in life as a white male. After disclosing her gender and that she is a minority, she immediately asks, What did I see to be except myself? Claiming that she, quote, made it up. She discusses that unlike white people who make up 60% of America's population yet own 80% of the wealth and are about 8% more likely to report being very happy than black Americans, she did not have nearly as many role models to align herself with. Or as she states in the poem, she had no model. While she could have been referring to her own personal life, she is also acknowledging the lack of representation of traditionally successful black women in America. She discusses that not only did she have little to look up to, but she also received little help throughout her journey in life as a woman of color. She explains that she had to go through the world, her one hand holding tight her other hand, as she never had the benefit of being perceived without bias in her very own country. The poem itself first reads as triumphant, yet when analyzed there is a sense of frustration as she feels there is no true ability in America for her to prosper as a white man could. It discusses a lack of positive minority, especially female minority, representation, as well as the overall oppression and often even violence that black women face as she adds in the very final lines of the poem, Come celebrate with me that every day someone has tried to kill me and has failed. While she herself is proud, she is still frustrated by the seemingly inescapable oppression and bias as a non-white woman in America. Not only is she frustrated, but quite imaginably doubtful and still unsure of her own future, as both her skin color as well as her gender make her a target for persecution. While the poem itself is of a single narrator, presumably Lucille Clifton herself, this piece of work is representative of not only her struggles, but the struggles of all black women in America. Women of color, including Clifton, cannot focus on one sole form of oppression, in the way that minority men and white women can, as they already struggle with multiple forms. Despite being the most educated group in America, black women are paid just 62% of what non-Hispanic white men are paid as of 2018. While women of color face multifaceted forms of maltreatment in their very own country, they are often at the forefront of social and political movements geared towards positive change. Movements in which often only highlight one part of their struggle rather than encompassing their entire intersectionality. After learning of revolutionary black women leaders such as Marsha P. Johnson, who initiated the Stonewall Riots of 1969, or Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garzar, as well as Opal Tometi, who created the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013, I sat down with a gender studies expert to learn more about intersectionality in America, Miss Canito. Okay, so hello, nice, you know, talk to you. Hi. 
Uh, and so, obviously, you are a gender studies expert at Morristown Baird. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Um, and I just want to ask you about, you know, some of the ideas behind the poem and mm-hmm. how you think it might represent um, modern-day America mm-hmm. uh, and, like, how you could possibly talk about that. It's obviously a white woman in America, yeah. but also a woman in America who does mm-hmm. have some of those experiences Obviously not with race, but with gender discrimination yeah. as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how do yeah? I mean, also like yes. Yeah, so how do you think that this these like struggles and oppression has been facing women today in America, mm-hmm. and how do you think that has like progressed to modern like times? So I mean, there are a lot of issues we can go into about kind of just even unfortunately like everyday discrimination against women, um, the pay gap is still a big thing, women not being paid as much as men for the same work. I think during the pandemic, a huge issue has been, like, a lot of women have had to leave the workforce to take care of their kids who can't go to school. And it's largely fallen on the women, on, you know, the female parent to, you know, be the one to give up a career. Um, So I think that's been a big impact. Um, Yeah, and I mean, there's just... Like, every day is, like, you know, sometimes, like, the way people talk to you, the way people look at you, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to think about what you're going to wear, and, you know, things that should not be a woman's problem, necessarily, Mm -hmm. to think about, but... The the objectification, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, it's just kind of always there. No, I would definitely agree on that (laughs) level as well. But I think the um, point about the pandemic is actually super interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously in this pandemic, we've also, bef- even before the pandemic, there was a, ri- or, um, a new movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, yes. which I'm sure you, we've discussed in um, class a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and how do you think that this movement, um, which was started by a mm-hmm. um, woman of color, how do you think this movement has impacted intersectionality? How, do you think it's, yeah, how do you think that has impacted I mean, I think there has been some inclusion. I mean, when I think of Black Lives Matter, I do just kind of think mostly of black men because whether they've just been the ones that people focus on, whether they've just been the ones who, you know, have had these unfortunate, like, horrible things happen to, like, more than women, I'm, like, I don't have the numbers in front of me. But, you know, and... For better or worse, you know, we've heard of people like, you know, Sandra Flake and like Breonna Taylor, who, you know, were also victims of this. And, I th- but I think in general, it's been very quiet in terms of intersectionality. Like, I have found some resources where people are talking about, like, being black and female, being black and a member of the LGBTQ community, and so on. But... You know, those things I don't really hear mainstream. Like, I've seen, I think, on my, like, Instagram, whatever, people, you know, pointing out that black trans women are, like, the most likely group of, I guess, people of color to be murdered. Um, But I think... I think a lot of people can get on board with Black Lives Matter more easily than they can get on board with Trans Lives Matter. 
probably right that yeah, I mean I, I very much I mean just to go back to Rihanna, I think it's very much like what you're saying about sexualization before mm-hmm. and just how not necessarily but objectification of this well you shouldn't have been with that man. You know you know yeah. better he wasn't a good guy. What were you doing with that? Mm-hmm. what was or what was she doing with that mm-hmm. man? That was, you know, and almost blaming her for oh she should have been more careful who she surrounded mm-hmm. herself with when it was an expo it wasn't even and it was just yeah. very complicated obviously but mm-hmm. I think also with trans lives matter and stuff like that that's also very like on strength I did also we mentioned um Marsha P. Johnson yes who started this trans um Stonewall rights and then her death was also ruled a suicide mm-hmm. after multiple people had come out family members and close friends yeah. saying that this was not most likely a suicide and mm-hmm. there was even an injury to the back of her head which had been yeah. very difficult to obtain during um yeah via suicide yeah, I mean, Marsha P. Johnson, I think, is such an interesting figure. I mean, just in terms of what she did, in terms of basically, like, being the first one to really fight back against the police on the rear of the Stonewall Inn and all of the work that she did afterwards. But unfortunately, I think part of also what's not maybe interesting isn't the right word, but, like, how much her story has been whitewashed. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was reading something, I think there's a movie about the Stonewall riot. And the and, first one to throw the brick, yeah. Yeah, and it's basically, like, this is, like, a fictionalized movie, and it's, like, you know, a bunch of cute white men who are who are fighting back. Um, which, I mean, I don't know. I guess I maybe we were just talking to their audience, but, you know, that's not true. And in addition to Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera was another... Um, woman, um, trans woman who was there, I believe, Latinx, um, and she doesn't get a lot of credit also, and also, I believe, died somewhat mysteriously and was ruled a suicide. Yeah, and it's a horrible experience, obviously, mm-hmm. for these women, but also, I mean, as we did instruct, um, talk to it, like, in gender studies in general, um, interse- the interna- intersectionality, which is the acknowledgement mm-hmm. of multiple forms of impression, and bias, whether race, religion, or gender. Mm-hmm. How do you think, why do you think it was? It has been so difficult for America to discuss this? Or do you think America has properly discussed this and we are properly like, taking care of it? Um, I mean, I will say, I think, at least in most Western cultures, it's still a topic that's difficult mm-hmm. for people to discuss. And there's still, you know, it's not just a U.S. problem, obviously. Um, some things are better or different in other countries. But, I mean, I think in terms of intersectionality, you know, I think a lot of it is, like, it's hard, it's kind of difficult initially to get people on board with, like, women should be treated as equals because we're all people and, you know, all that. Mm -hmm. And then when you add in, you know, lesbians should be treated as equals, black women should be treated as equal, women of color should be treated as equal, you know, Jewish women should be treated as equal, or, you know, Muslim women should be treated as equal. I think that adds more layers to it. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are not comfortable, even with like the base conversation of just women. And so they're not really going to, you know, want to discuss, let's say, like the specific problems of trans women or trans women of color. No, I would definitely agree with that. Just like, I mean, I was thinking just as you were talking about the um, shootings in, I think, Atlanta. I might Mm -hmm. be completely wrong with that. But um, of the spa shooting. Yeah. And they how that was ruled not a hate crime despite yeah. them despite him 
having such a heavy sexualization for Asian women yeah. that it then turned into a hate in which he then opened fire on mm-hmm. these women. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of the police justification for that was they was said... sexualizing. Yeah, them. it was, like, you know, this kind of, I guess, like, fetish or sexual fantasy that he had. But the fact that, you know, Asian women are fetishized. It wasn't hate because it was instead that, that he was so attracted to them. Yeah. But when that attraction does become hate and it's a fetishization yeah. of it, yeah. I mean, and, I mean, like, in terms of, you know, misogyny and sexism, like, yeah, some things sound positive. Like, you know, oh, he just thinks Asian women are really gorgeous or really pretty. But that's still devaluing them as, like, people. It's not just, like, sexual uh, uh, objectifying them. But, you know, part of it is this blanket statement of, you know, I like Asian women. And all Asian women have to, like, are probably like this. And all Asian women are, like, you know, masseuses or whatever. And stripping of identity, yeah. Yeah, and it happens a lot with a lot of different groups. Like, you know, you hear black women talk and they say I have to stay quiet in conversations because I don't want to be the angry black woman because that's the stereotype associated mm-hmm. with that um, and yeah there are a lot of things that you know people have to think about there's a lot of code switching that people have to think about and I think part of it also is that especially as women and you know when you add in you know other intersectional traits Women, as in general, are kind of taught to be docile and to, you know, not rock the boat, don't make waves. So, you know. No, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. that makes complete sense. Uh, and then just additionally, as we've discussed, um, the plot, like in the past, mm-hmm. black women have often been um, forgotten in American feminism, mm-hmm. such as in the 13th Amendment. Uh, and what do you think has changed about the conversation? Um, to encourage the prevalence of intersectionality into like a discussion, because I mm-hmm. personally I think it has been more noticeable, more noticed and discussed, while still not discussed enough, yeah. or as often as needed. It is certainly something that at least we are thinking of now, and I don't. Mm-hmm. The term intersectionality is at least more of a common yeah. term mm-hmm. than before. So, what do you think has encouraged that recently? So I think just in terms of general feminism over the years, um, people like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks have certainly been active in, you know, making sure the voices of black women and women of color have been heard. And I think in general, the field has been opening up with each kind of subsequent subsequent wave of feminism. Like the first form of feminism, I think, was very much like white women and straight women. But, you know, and also Angela Davis going way back, like, there have been women of color who have made very real contributions. And I think that has helped. And I think also, again, like the inclusion of, you know, lesbians and trans women, of, you know, bisexual women, of Muslim women, of women, like all ethnicities, races, whatever. I think just the more those voices are heard in general, you know, leads to change. But the problem is they also have to be heard. No, I would completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of that is, you know, when you're talking about, like, you know, discrimination against Muslim women, that's almost like a niche topic, or it becomes a niche mm-hmm. topic. 
Like, yeah, no, like that's I on general feminism. Yes, no, I would definitely agree. And I think that that's a super important thing that like is so slowly being addressed, but not nearly enough that it needs at the point yeah. right now because it is still so niche. Yeah. And intersectional feminism is such like a, it's still almost like a differential form of feminism rather than just me, but I feel yeah. like personally it should be like the main form of feminism. Yeah. So I do definitely find that like very interesting. Yeah, I mean... It, it's slow. Progress, unfortunately, is slow. I mean, I know I was saying all Western countries are kind of similar, but, like, the United States is one of the only developed countries that doesn't have, like, comprehensive maternal leave and, you know, care for mothers, for new mothers. Like, I think I read something that President Biden is going to try and make it a law that it had to be eight weeks. And, like, I know I have a friend who lives in England who... She has three kids. With each kid, she got a year off of work. That is awesome. Yeah, and her husband so got better. a lot of, you know, family leave Time as off. well. Yeah, and the husband's, I mean, the husband's been getting everything. Yeah, so it's just, you know, right now for us, and progress in that area is making it officially eight weeks, hopefully across the board. Like, it's good, but it's not nearly good enough. Yeah, no, I would certainly agree with that. And I, I think... Sorry. Oh, no. And I think, again, as more voices join the conversation, it's good. But I think what a lot of women are pushing for now is the fact that, like, it's not good enough. We're not going to wait. And so I think you are starting to hear a bit more about it, which is good. How much will actually change? And, you know, unfortunately, we're just going to have to wait and see. Thank you so much for meeting with me. My pleasure. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. After researching the oppression black women and all women of color face in America, any American with a semblance of morality would most likely want to better understand the variety of perspectives from women of color on the topic. The best possible way to understand an issue that others are facing is often through truly listening to their perspectives, especially if one is not a part of such group. For all those that would like to help increase the acknowledgement of intersectionality in American feminism, Reading and truly analyzing literature by women of color is one great way to obtain such perspectives. Thank you for sitting down to discuss such an important issue with me. And thank you to all my supporters who have been listening to my podcast and subscribed. I now would like to introduce you guys to my dog, Mac, who I'm currently putting up for sale as he eats everything and does not move more than 30 minutes a day. So if anyone is interested in a hundred-something pound lab who will not move unless bribed with food and does not do anything else except eat and leave his hair all over your bed, I would highly suggest reaching out to me to discuss the possibilities of owning your very own obese lab. Thank you, have a nice day, and make sure to stay lit.